Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Aliff. This will be the last episode of the year and the last of this current season. We've got loads more great interviews lined up for you in the new year, so keep your eyes peeled for the next episode where we'll be going through exactly what you can expect. But for now, it's time to close off season two with a really interesting discussion around corporate due diligence and how it can be used to make your business more attractive to prospective buyers in what will be an extremely competitive market in 2023. To discuss this, we are joined by Simon Hemsley, a partner at Armstrong, one of our valued Pep Talks advisory member businesses. Now, over to Sam and Simon. Here we are, next episode of Map of the Maze. Um, today, delighted to be joined by Simon Hemsley of Armstrong, uh, our friends and advisory partners in Pep Talks. Uh, their commercial due diligence and value creation and strategic consulting um, players, uh, most pertinently to the sort of lower and mid market of private equity in the UK. Is that is that fair? Simon? Yeah, that's right. So I'm uh, very pleased to be on here as well. I've listened to um, more than a few of the podcasts now, so uh, very excited to be um, oh, actually actually saying something rather than just listening. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully, I can do do justice to the subject. So we thought we'd we'd have a chat with Simon. I mean. Our advisory partners provide great value because they give us a, a sense of what's happening in the market outside of the individual worlds of um, management teams and individual portfolio companies. And I think probably to start, uh, Simon, it would be great just to get a sense of what you're seeing in the market. It feels like there's lots of change and shifts happening. So is the market dropping off a cliff <laughs> by comparison to 2021? Um, that's a really good question. So it's very easy to be um, gloomy. So I'm going to start off with the positives where you know, deal flow is definitely down a bit. It's definitely softened. Um, I think over the summer we saw um, signs of a slowdown, but we, we get the sense actually that was more people taking kind of a summer holiday for the first time in kind of two, two and a half years. We think um, you know, 2020, 2021, 2022 been super busy. Um, right now, activity levels feel like they're back to... Um, around about sort of September 2019, something like that. Uh-huh. Um, there's still a lot of flow out, uh, there's still a lot of deals to talk to people about out there. We're, you know, broadly at capacity um, as a business and sort of talking to some of our competitors and other advisors, people are still um, pretty busy talking. As I say, it, it's, it's definitely slow. I think there's some real challenges as we look forward, there are some real challenges in the market. If you've got a reason to delay the deal to get a bit more mm. clarity on energy prices, on what's happening in Ukraine, on interest rates, if, if there's a reason to delay it, we feel we, we, we're seeing that people are doing that. But equally, there's still there's still a lot of confidence in the market. There's a lot of dry powder out there. There's a lot of funds hunting deals. So there's still there's still a fair amount of activity. If you're if you're an entrepreneur, uh, would you be bringing your business to the market at the moment? Do you think I mean, these first time deals? Uh, first-time mid-market transactions are largely driven by entrepreneurs and family businesses coming to the market. So do you think they're going to slow down next year and not going to see quite as much happening in the lower mid-market? I don't know. That's a really good question. The challenge is there's so much capital out there to be to um, be deployed. So it really does depend, I think, on 
what sector you're in. So tech is still hot. So you know, managed services, e-coms, all those kind of businesses. Anything that is mm. um, vertical specific software is still still hot. Um, there's a lot out there in tech. So testing, inspection, certification, compliance. Um, we've been tracking a lot in. I, I look after financial services and business services. So the wealth management market. So financial advisors, wealth platforms. Um, discretionary fund managers, a lot of activity there. That so there's still a lot of capital out there. I think the sense, my sense, would be really uh, uh, there's no it's no different to any other time really. You know, what do you need the capital for? Mm. Um, you know, kind of changes in people's um, you know, ch- changes in people's lives, de-risking, getting additional capital in, helping a manage uh, you know management team buy out a, fi- a founder. Those things still happen. Yeah. Um, Clearly, there's going to be you know some elements of maybe there's 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 um, EBITDAs maybe slightly lower, maybe multiples have come off a little bit, but they're coming off some pretty high, massive high historic high. rates, right? Yeah. Um, so so my sense is it really does like anything. It depends where where you are in the life life cycle of your business. Yeah. I think. But if you've got a good business, if you are a good business, there's a lot of private equity dry powder out there waiting to be deployed, isn't it? And the private equity model can't stop investing, can they? I mean, that's the, the business they're in is a Ten-year fund, and they need to get their money away in the first five years. So. Yeah, and and to a certain extent, I mean, to a certain extent, they need to be able to deploy capital at any stage of the of of the um, of the economic cycle as well. Mm. So clearly, there's going to be you know slowdown. So um, and obviously, when COVID hit and the pandemic lockdowns um, came in, we saw you know very little activity for probably six weeks. But then the six weeks after that, we 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 got a couple of deals, and it's been racing away since then. So there is always going to be that, and, and we saw that as kind of a shock to the system, which I think is a similar shock in the last month or so. It just takes private equity a little time to kind of calibrate, work out where they are. Figure out, you know, go go back and look at their investment hypotheses, what they like as a fund, work through what it what what it is they want to do. There's going to have to be some impact on on value. So it's a question of can CF management teams and private equity guys can can they come down a little bit on on value? I think in these corrective periods, though, there's some the opportunities for investment and then delivering higher returns um, are. Are good. I mean, I think post the credit crunch, I mean, that vintage at 2008, 2009 vintage was one of the best vintages in terms of investment periods, wasn't it? Because they got those businesses at a reasonable value and then had a sustained period of growth after after that period. Yeah, and no, I think that's right. And I think people do remember that. And again, I mean, it's it's t- too early to tell, obviously, but it's the mm. same kind of thing. Those first six months of the pandemic lockdown, there were a lot of funds sat on the sidelines because they were still being cautious and actually they saw other people come in yeah. and pick up some pretty attractive businesses there at good, good prices. It's probably fair to say we're going to have fits and bursts of activity, aren't we, over the next 12 to maybe 24 months. There's going to be periods of you know, quite a lot of activity followed by periods of you know um, inactivity as there's more uncertainty. We're definitely in uncertain times, aren't we? There's, we're not quite sure what the future exactly holds. But the fact that there's so much dry powder out there, the fact that the sort of debt markets and the mid-market is still open, there's a willingness to still get out there and do deals um, and opportunities to buy really, really good high-performing businesses. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it also sort of talks to the, not just the amount of dry powder, that's right, of course, but also the number of, um, you know, private equity funds there are, you know, there are out there. And I think also one of the things that we've seen from probably, it was probably a theme again, coming back to kind of financial services, maybe tech, um, some of the... P funds that may be more generalist are now setting up, they've got bigger, they're now setting up generalist teams. People maybe during um, the pandemic had time or, or, or were kind of forced into looking at sectors they hadn't looked at before. So actually there's a, um, 
there are more fun you know there are ever more funds chasing the same number of deals so we've we've you know just been hunting one deal around the market where we probably had sort of 15 conversations with people so far so for us as a mm. buy side advisor we can get pretty busy pretty quickly but then you sort talk to the PE guys and talk to their whip list some of them have got quite a lot on there some of them have got something in exclusivity maybe others are working things up so as an advisor you can get quite busy quite quickly and I think that comes back to your other points around um, the peaks and troughs I think there's a limited amount of kind of advisory capacity in the market clearly corporate finance added heads we, we've expanded our competitors have served the FDD teams but I think the, the actual capacity in the market to be able to kind of support this number of deals probably hasn't changed a huge amount right. um, so if I mean, you, you're probably closer to the stats than me but if, if deal volumes are up sort of 50% over the last couple of years you know, maybe we're back to where we were kind of September 2019 something like that but I doubt, I doubt the actual deal doing capacity in the market has probably increased as, as much as that that's good. That's good for you, isn't it? Well, hopefully, like, I mean, maybe there's no one that's talking my book here, but we, we we still we still feel pretty busy and talking to, um, you know, talking to um, sort of friends in corporate finance houses. there, mm. still busy working up deals. We're you know everybody's expecting it to be busy next quarter. Yeah. Um, but if the if the market does just come off a bit, which it definitely has done, um, I suppose that then. Uh, turns the focus of investors somewhat onto their existing portfolio companies and um, existing investments. And um, what we're seeing in our community are uh, our members really thinking very carefully about preparing themselves and preparing that next exit um, chapter or next stage of the exit story, which isn't just about you know a convincing. Um, value proposition or value creation plan to invest into in the immediate future. It's actually a long-term, real long-term exit um, uh, story. So uh, we're, we're actually doing a piece where we're going to be talking to three CEOs who've delivered very high multiple returns. And we're just looking for some of the commonalities across those businesses in terms of why they might have delivered such a high return. And I think one of the things that's coming out in the preparation stage for that conversation is that um, they work up an extremely strong story uh, of growth, not over the next you know two to five years, but actually over the next decade. Um, and this this plays to some of your strengths, doesn't it? And just you know some of the work that you do is very much around uh, developing that story and narrative of. And, and value proposition as to why someone is going to come and invest next time around. Yeah, and, and that's that's a really interesting point actually. Because I think where where we think a, a good commercial due diligence report is really helpful is essentially, of course, we need to enable the transaction. We need to highlight the risks, highlight the opportunity, work out work out how to mitigate the risk, work out how to um, take advantage of the opportunities. But it's also making something that's immediately useful for the private equity funds 100-day plan. And the best deals that we, we've seen uh, do have to share some of those things where, for example, the PE investor and the management team, the management team are probably sick of advisors by that stage, to be fair. But the PE team will get the advisors together and figure out from all the, the CDD, the, the um, FDD, the tax DD, technology, whatever there is, sales, what do we actually, what do we actually need to get, get going in the 100-day in the plan? What then is then, in, after that 100-day plan, the next two to three years, in our likely hold period, and then what's a what's a um, a longer period? And actually, the best um, I'm kind of 
afraid I can't remember which um, PE fund said this, but one of the um, one of the bits they said was whenever they invest in a business, they should be able to maybe not maybe they can't write the investment memorandum for next time around, but they certainly write the teaser documents. Yeah. And you should have a very clear idea on the day you invest of what's going to be in your teaser documents, what are the things that you've done, and what are the things that's still left to be done. Mm-hmm. Because the work, you know, you, you, any um, any uh, PE businesses up for sale, I guess, at any, any point in time. But actually just trying to figure out what, what what can we definitely do in the next two to three years? What's, what's that look like? What do we need in terms of resources, developers, salespeople, money, locations, um, relationships? Which, which geographies do we need to be in? What services are we offering? Actually have a real clear idea of what it is we're going to do. And also crucially, and this is where the strategy point comes in, strategy is about doing things, but also crucially it's about not doing things. So what are the things we're not going to do and why? And then that then leads to, as you say, over, over the journey, hopefully you're hitting the things we said we were going to do when we invested. And then at the at, at exit, we can say, actually, well, look, we, we've, we, we thought we could go into Europe or the USA. Actually, this time we've proven it out into going into several European countries. But we've done that in a way that we're learning for, so that the next investor's got the opportunity to go into the US, for example. That's yeah. a, a, a general example there. But I think I think that's a really interesting bit. The, the, and the best investors should be positioning themselves, talking to management teams. It's not just, what well, we're going to give you some money, but we're going to give you some support, whatever that support looks like. So if you've got a people-based business, um, a, a, a PE fund that's got um, the ability to, and the experience in helping you, um, scale up on the recruitment side. So we, we might quite often work in businesses that might have, I know, 30 to 50 staff, for example, and your business plan might be to get to 150 to 200 people in four, four or five years' time. That's really difficult. That's like properly difficult in terms of the, the number of people you need to get into the funnel, the number of interviews you need to do, the number of relationships with recruitment agents, the, the, the universities you need to meet. Having a clear idea of how to do that is actually really difficult. But if you've got a PE fund who's got the experience of doing that, they can provide you the right partners, um, as an external partners, the right operating support. Those are the kind of things that help work through to the, to the exit strategy. I suppose another element of this developing the story um, for the next time round is also aligning yourself against your potential buyers as a management team, isn't it? So, you know, you, you've got to be able to sort of demonstrate a, a future pathway for the business that's attractive to not just private equity, but also to um, trade buyers and trade buyers will want you for different reasons so you know I, I suppose when you're going in and working with management teams on the value creation planning how much do you, how much time do you spend on that element of understanding the buyer pool and what's going to make this particular asset attractive to the different buyer pools so that that's a great question so the the, the place we always start on which is a um, slightly dreadful phrase but it's kind of helpful I think is sustainable incremental differentiators yeah. so what we mean by and that is a fairly dreadful phrase sorry but what we mean by differentiators is okay how, how's this business different to the competition right so and you might only be differential different in um, you know certain ways you might only be different in a kind of a fairly um, minor way in particular areas and that's what we talk about the kind of the incremental bit so there's a series of things you're slightly better at and then the sustainable bit is the is the key thing that's what we're really trying to understand there which is actually can you put more money more effort into into kind of growing that so there's a range of things so for example um if you're um, a recruitment business you might have better customer service you might be faster responding to candidates you might be better at um uh, you might be better at prepping people for interviews. You might have a deeper pool of of um, of, of candidates. You might have um, 
consultants who are really specialist in an area of tech or an area of pharma or an area of accountancy so they can really talk to those things and it's actually trying to figure out actually what, what are they what are those things what are you what are you actually good for because then in the example of a, of a, of a recruitment business there's two routes you can go you can go abroad and do more of the same abroad or you can move into adjacent sectors and actually then coming back to your point thinking from that biopool perspective if you're in technology recruitment there's probably eight or ten big uk tech recruiters who might be looking to buy you actually do you stay in your relative niche of i don't know recruiting into google cloud or recruiting into aws or recruiting into microsoft dynamics because that then increases the value of exits mm. or do you go and take that abroad because then that widens the number of people who might be looking i don't know a us business might be looking for a presence in the uk as well or is the value in in the in the in the sector you're being in and being um, having five, six, seven different functions, different areas you you recruit into, because then actually you can grab more of a share of wallet from 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 the customers. So ha- having that sense of well, what are you really good at? What can you go and do? And then sitting there and thinking, okay, who's going to buy us for what reason? How do you help your your clients uncover those answers? Um, so in terms of the commercial due diligence work we do, and we also do this a lot in kind of value creation and exit strategy, a core part of what we do is um, voice of the customer, so customer referencing. So actually talking to customers now, a good management team, a good sales team will have an account management function. They'll, talk, they'll be talking to their customers all the time. We still think there's value in having a, a, a sort of a neutral voice um, talking to people. So we've got very experienced um, market researchers who are used to having these conversations across a, a you know, range of sectors and actually really starting to draw out, okay, actually having sort of different types of, competi- uh, uh, of um, questions as well. well why, did you, why did you choose this business? Why do you continue using this business? Mm-hmm. And actually getting customers to speak to us in a way that they may not say that to the management team. So the man, they may assume that the management team already knows it. They may, they may, they may just think, well, that's a really obvious thing. Well, why would I t- say that to somebody? They may have already told the management team. The management team went, okay, great, that's fine. We're too busy. Let's move on. We're doing operational things. Yeah. So actually, the starting point for a lot of the work is that piece around, and you can do a lot of that work outside in. By outside in, we can mean look at desk research, look at people on our network, speak to market experts, speak to competitors, look at annual reports, look at look at all those things. But actually, that supported by getting under the skin and speaking to customers. Is, is a great um, is a great starting point, and a lot of the time it comes down to, um, for example, again in a in a um, sort of people business, there's probably some elements of professional services. There's going to be some element of customer service. There's going to be some element of um, deep expertise. There's going to be something probably along the lines. You've got people of big four quality at a cheaper price. So we're just trying to understand what those things are and how they blend together in the kind of customers buying decision. That's then also from that. Um, it's always always amazes me what people will tell us, um, but then you know if you don't know where to take your business, then you'll, you know just ask your customers. Your customers will tell you, right? Well, the problem is sometimes you assume you know where you're going to take your business, yeah. and actually it's the wrong assumption. Uh, what, what your customers buy you for, the service or the product or the differentiator that they identify in you is can sometimes be quite different. It's there in your your own yeah. mind, but it might be a further down the priority list. So. It can actually make a material impact on your your exit plan, can't it? Your future value creation plan. Yeah, I, I, make I, no assumptions. I think is what yeah, we're saying. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think I think you have to have kind of a clear plan of what you want to ask people, particularly on the value creation and the and, and the exit strategy piece. Yeah. 
Um, if, we're, if we're doing kind of commercial due diligence, there's usually a set of um, sort of key key questions, key investment hypotheses we've worked up with the with with um, our buy side PE clients. If we're on the sell side, with the management team, we'll work through obviously with the management team and corporate finance. But I think I think when we're doing that value creation and exit strategy piece, it has to be. Um, a set of closed questions in that you're trying to find things out, but then those those kind of more open questions to give people the opportunity to speak. And people are usually delighted to be asked. Mm. You know, um, I think there's some examples of, I mean, there's always an example I give, which is a, a tech implementation consultancy. I was speaking to a, a partner from one of the big four in, in um, the north of England, and I asked her one question and was talking to her for an hour and a quarter about this business because she was so passionate about it but and she gave us chapter and verse on exactly where, where they were good where they needed to improve things why they'd lost out on various deals why she recommended them why she didn't recommend them and actually that was just solid gold but they, she'd never been asked and it's those, it's, those, it's those kind of things so you know we're not just doing market research there is that overlay of kind of strategic thinking trying yeah. to figure out actually okay, so what, what does this actually mean but that's a cool that's a cool um, start piece we'd also then um, quite often we're called in where management have an idea, they're not quite sure what to do, or maybe there's a difference between the management different difference of opinions within the management team or between management and PE. Mm. Try and figure out, okay, what is it the competition are doing? Right. We think we want to go and do this route. Quite often we've seen that po- through COVID and post COVID, people in um, I don't know, kind of education may 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 have had um an online presence, they may have had an in class presence, but both are now thinking about what well, do we need to do something hybrid. And actually, that's quite difficult to do because you need to invest quite a lot either in people and classrooms or in technology. And actually, there's a lot of money that needs to be spent there before you go and do anything. Um, we also see that in um, professional services business. The, the classic thing is you go and invest in a professional services business. Everybody wants to go and build some technology. But actually, your client's really going to go and buy that technology from you when there's lots of technology providers in the space. So just trying to figure out those kind of... some. They sound quite basic questions, but mm. you know, strategy is quite often those figuring out what the problem is and where you want to go and asking yeah. some basic questions. But that's how you get to the bottom of your sustainable differentiator. Yeah. You're talking to your market, you're making no assumptions, um, and you're stress testing the various options that you have in terms of your future value creation plan and that preparation for exit. Yeah, and, th- and then that should give you a, a good sense of why, uh, you know, if, you, if it's a primary deal or a secondary deal, why PE would want to come and invest in you or thinking about the types of trade buyers who'd, who'd, who'd want to get you as well. Yeah. Um, because if we if we link this back to our first um, point of conversation, which is around the market, um, the market is definitely changing. I mean, you know, I'm going to get off the fence. I think it is going to drop quite considerably next year. Uh, uh, you know, it's not going to be Armageddon. It's not going to be a disaster. But I think it's only the really strong, high-performing assets that are really going to attract a lot, you know, lots of attention from mid-market investors. And if you're going to be one of those, then you have to have a really strong story of growth and value creation over the next you know, five to ten years. And you've got to really understand your sustainable differentiator as to how you're going to get there. Um, this is work that you've got to start you know, getting into fairly, fairly early. You don't want to leave, leave it until the point of you know, six to 12 months pre-exit. Yeah, and I think I, I completely agree with that. I and mean, I think there's one slight caveat, which is I think that's been true all the way through, is there's there's been a sort of a relative dearth of high quality assets. So I think what we're what I completely agree with you, I think volumes are gonna definitely come off. Um but there is still gonna be interest in those high quality businesses. It, it's absolutely around how you um position yourself, not just for now, but also figuring out well, what do I need to do in the next 
two, three years, what can I not necessarily leave till afterwards, but at least have a plan to sit there going, look, this is our organic growth plan. Actually, this is our accelerated growth plan. If we get additional investment in here, we can maybe go and do these things. They don't necessarily need to be yeah. um, well thought out. I mean, you know, quite often we'll say, well, people are going to go, we're going to go and conquer the US. Okay, great. Well, where are you going to start, right? Is it Tampa or Phoenix or Chicago or Boston or New York or wherever? You don't necessarily need to get right down into the detail of it, but having a clear idea of what that is. Um, and, and, and also then as you're talking to different um buyers, whether it's peer, whether it's trade, there's different things you can say to people. So having a clearly well-worked out idea, mm. that's, it's, it's not just how you differentiate yourself with your business, but also thinking about, you know, what are we going to do next? Um, so the strategy is important. I think thinking about your people as well, I think it's quite important. So if you've got um, a founder and a manager in the business, are they going to be around for next time? Who's your CFO going to be? Who's the next layer of management? So actually, if you take investment the first time around, well, second time around, who's going to be sitting in the room with um, mm. the uh, the next round of PE investors? And actually, that takes time for people to get up to speed. You need to spend some time preparing people, getting them credible, understanding what those roles are going to be. Because there's no point in two weeks before a process deciding, right, so-and-so, COO, your head of sales, let's go and push you in there. You need to get people building up to it. Yeah. And it may be, you might need to make some changes to the senior management and executive team because some... Um, the people that have been with you to this point have delivered a great job, but can they actually do what um, what needs to be done in the next chapter of the value creation plan and the next chapter of this exit story? And in, in many cases, they can't, and you need you either yeah. need to change them or bring higher level, more experienced individuals in to complement them. Absolutely, and I mean the exit strategy work we do. I think in the US it's called um, re-diligence, which is kind of a horrible phrase, but it's also quite helpful, I think, because yeah. exit strategy isn't necessarily right preparing for an exit right now. Re-diligence, I think, is quite helpful because it's almost, it's somewhere ahead of any formal process, whether or not you've got kind of sell-side CDD or not. It's ahead of a process. It's sort of, it's almost looking again at what made the business attractive on the way in, what those differentiators were, what were the, what were the things you're going to say in your 100-day plan, your two, three-year plan, what you've done, what you haven't done, what you haven't done is fine because then you can figure out a story to say about that. Maybe we decided to do something else. Maybe we couldn't find the person to go and do it. Maybe we've done some of it. Maybe we parked it deliberately. Um, but it's it's actually then helping explain to you and then to investors well, what's changed since then. And that then helps you and your CF advisors articulate actually why you're not just attractive but also attractive relative to the, to the other people who they might want to buy. Yeah. Okay, I think the last point we wanted to sort of cover in this podcast was um, value drag. So we've spent some time talking about the market, uh, spent some time thinking about lining yourself up for the next round of investment, however long, far out that might be. But if we are going to be going into an exit fairly soon, um, you guys must be on this all of the time looking for commercial value tracks. What brings a valuation down? Actually, more positively, what pushes a valuation up? You know, what are the things that um, portfolio companies should be doing out there now to put themselves in the best position to get the best multiple? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question um, and a difficult one to answer. Uh, good one to finish on. So, so is it probably helpful to give some give some examples? I think if that's if that's okay, yeah. we can maybe explore those because so so I sort of touched on earlier the classic thing if you've got a professional services business, let's say you're doing some sort of compliance consultancy or some sort of HR consultancy, something like that. The classic thing there is to say right, well we need to do some tech, some tech is leave behind, but actually that can be quite 
that can distract the management team. You probably haven't got people in the business who can do it right now. You probably need to go and hire some developers. You're being bought for your whatever it is, advisory skills or change skills or transformation skills. You're being bought as a consultancy and you're selling into whatever the functional area is. You're not you're not used to selling tech into a in, into a tech business. So the classic example there is financial services. There's some really very very big um, tech providers out there. There's also some. I saw some stats. So don't quote me on this, but I'll give the stat. Something like 800 reg tech providers. So regulatory technology providers in London alone, right? So how are you, as a professional services management team, going to differentiate against that? Well, the answer is it's going to be really difficult, and you're going to spend a lot of time developing something and selling something that may actually only generate a few thousand pounds. That's quite good as a leave behind, but actually, that's a good example of something where you can spend a lot of time as a management team trying to work something out that doesn't isn't necessarily what your customers want to buy. Overcomplicating it. Overcomplicating, but also selling it to a different part of the selling yeah. selling something that your people you're selling to aren't, they're not the ones buying it, you need to go and meet the CTO. The CTO is going to look at you and go, well, you haven't got the credibility as a, as a professional services organisation. Another um, good example of that, maybe turning it around and saying, as a, you know, as a tech provider, is you really want, you know, if you're selling, a, um, selling tech, you want to be valued as close to a SaaS multiple as you can be. So actually anything that takes away that SaaS multiple, that reduces that SaaS multiple is probably a bad thing. So there's going to be an element of implementation revenue, there's going to be an element of um, service revenue in there, um, or sort of maintenance revenue, but you need to be quite careful if you're selling off that te- tech thing and somebody says, right, actually, can we do this as a managed services platform? Well, that's potentially attractive, but you need to be really thinking about actually what are you, who are you going to be selling to? Are you going to be selling to a tech firm? Are you going to be selling to a tech-focused investor? Are they going to really give you that value for, for building out a, um, a managed services platform? Um, and I think the third one probably I think you sort of touched on it earlier is around um, kind of people and, and the, the risk there of you, you've just got to have the right people in place, those people who can actually deliver the plan, the people who can, yeah. who've got the ability to learn, maybe they need to learn a bit, but they can also talk about things in kind of a private equity way. So when, when you're spending time building the business say, and, and building up towards the exit strategy, you've actually got people there who can talk intelligently about and explain what it is that makes your makes your um, business different. And I think we've seen a few examples there where, maybe not on recent deals so much, but certainly a few deals I can think of where you've kind of got to the end of it and actually thought, well, maybe you need a slightly different person in that role. Maybe they're not quite credible enough. Okay, well, thanks for that, Simon. That was great. Some real good insights there. Yeah, if there's, if there's listeners out there thinking about beginning to work up their exit stories for the longer term and thinking about re-examining their value creation plan, I'm sure Armstrong would be very happy to make contact. You can you can do that through us at Pep Talks. But thanks again for your time, Simon. No, thank you. That was, uh, that was a really interesting discussion. Hopefully, hopefully that's helpful for your listeners.